Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, how's it going? Champagne Sharks this is Trevor. Uh, today we have with us uh, Gregory Pierrot author of Decolonized Hipsters, which was a book that surprised me a lot. It um, I read it digitally, but it's not a huge book, but it was denser than I expected. It was, uh, and I wanted to ask you, well, first, let us know who you are, anything you think is important for us to know about you, but then also how this book came to be. Okay, uh, thanks for having me. Um, so that's a, that's an existential question, <laughs> uh, I guess. So I'm Greg Piero. Um, I was uh, born and raised in, in France. I've lived in the U.S. for, for about 20 years now. Um, I teach African-American and American literature at the University of Connecticut at Stanford. Um, the way this book came to be, uh, it's a pretty funny story. So my friend and colleague, uh, Bhakti Shringapurai, uh, runs the series Decolonize That uh, for OR books. Um, part of it derived from a webcast we used to, to we ran together in the COVID years. Um, and, you know, she had the idea of starting a series on, you know, if, you know what is very much a buzzword uh, these days, but, you know, sort of uh, partly uh writing that wave but also you know hopefully uh writing interesting things about it and uh, as she was telling me about this idea she said well you know the, the whole idea was to actually write something short right like that you could you know easily easy to read but but maybe deeper than it might seem and uh she said so which one are you gonna write and you know i said i, I don't know i don't think i'm necessarily the person to write this and she said oh you know come on you gotta find one and so i said i don't know hipsters and i really i sort of thought she would not um get in it and, you know she, she would not accept it um, wait, wait, wait so was there like a set list that she wanted you to pick one or it was open-ended you could pick whatever you wanted no yeah there, there, there still is no set list people uh will come to her with ideas uh, and proposals um and and yeah um you know i mean there's a conversation i'm sure uh, in our case i said this you know half as a joke and i guess she thought it was funny so that's how i ended up writing it Essentially. No, and uh, don't forget to tell us about yourself and your um, biography because oh. I think it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, well, what can I say? So, I was, as I said, born and raised in, in France uh, in the city of Metz, uh, close to Luxembourg and Germany. I say Metz uh, for, for the English speakers out, speakers out there. I will say Metz as it's supposed to be said, uh, or my ancestors would kill me. Uh, so, my father was from that region. My mother's from Martinique in the Caribbean. Um, and uh, she moved to uh, to the continent uh, sometime in the seventies. Um, I'm actually going back to Martinique this summer for the first time in in forever. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure what else to say. I was, um, you know, I've been studying uh, American literature and culture for forever. Uh, I was 
always an interest of mine since I was a teenager. Uh, you know, music, uh, certainly uh, literature, certainly history, because I was always a, a kind of a history nerd. Um, and I moved here in the 20s after uh, meeting my wife uh, at the University of Illinois, where I'd gone uh, for an exchange program. So I came back and <laughs> decided and we stayed. Um, and so, yeah, I've been here since, you know, the early 2000s. Uh, went to grad school at Penn State. Uh, same thing, early 2000s, got my PhD there. Um, and yeah, I've been teaching to uh, at, at UConn since uh, 2013. Now, have you lived in any particularly hipsterish cities? Because I was impressed with the nuance of your knowledge of, you know, how it is. I was wondering if you ever lived like in Brooklyn, Portland, any places that tend to be associated with... Uh, no, uh, I've li- I, I lived in Paris. So maybe that, maybe that counts. <laughs> it counts yeah, there's a big like Brooklyn obsession there for at least it was for a second, right? Is that was that true? There was a uh, talk of people saying that there's that there was a lot of um, Brooklyn themed type of cafes and. So I I may have missed that. Um, I want to say you know there's there's a lot ongoing obsession with the U.S. in France. Period. Um, about imi- you know maybe imitating it. I, I'm not. I don't know. Um, I can't remember seeing this, but maybe maybe it was after I was there. I was there again you know, at the turn of the of the two thousands. So you know between. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. No, this was this was uh, after. There were some articles about it. People showing pictures of. Uh... Yeah, but I was I was impressed with because uh, I live in New York. I live in Brooklyn, um, mm-hmm. and you know I was there when the uh, whole first wave of hipsterdom uh, started, and I was very surprised to see how mainstream the whole thing kind of got like i think in a way depending on the way you look at it some people feel like um hipsters ended like in the 2010s because it got so mainstream it didn't even really count as a scene anymore like it's like pretty much uh it's it's the normal fashion now like you know it's uh like a regular person to me dresses like a hipster used to dress and then what they call a hipster now is someone who's like extra um hipster so it's, it's very kind of weird that they won this uh kind of culture war because they looked very weird at first and they were only isolated to a small part of um um brooklyn so when i read your book i was expecting it to be kind of um smaller in scope but i was going to start with uh the the 2000s and that first wave of hipsters and take us to today and talk about a couple of cities but you and i was wondering if you had this idea from the beginning or if it stumbled uh, onto you as you progressed through it you tied into a much larger narrative and tradition in uh, American race relations that I found very persuasive, but I wasn't expecting. And I was wondering um, how that approach came to you. Was it something that revealed itself to you as you worked on it? Or from the time you suggested decolonize hipsters, was that the scope you were um, imagining from the beginning? Um, I, I, I don't think so. Um, I was working, as I tend to do, I was working on, on different things at the same time. And I think one of the ways uh, I get to this beyond uh, the fact that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm a you know, I'm very uh, uh, history minded uh, and, you know, in my uh, scholarly research, uh, and that's the way I tend to, to look at things. Um, but at the same time, as I, I, when I started writing this book, I was also working on a different book, um, you know, a scholarly edition in, in French about uh, short stories about the Haitian Revolution. And as I was researching uh, that book, one of the things I ran into and that I also mentioned in the in the hipster book is, um, you know, the, the uh, Caribbean presence in the, in the French bohemian culture in the 1840s, which was 
of a discovery to me. I mean, I was aware of Bohemian culture, but the way you tend to learn it is, you know, Baudelaire, you know, whatever, all the French, white French Jews, right? And what really flawed me, I mean, the the maximum I'd ever heard until then was, uh, you know, the um, and and I'm, I forget her name. That's terrible with me. But um, uh, Baudelaire's muse, who 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 has roots in Haiti, and that's sort of uh, you know, um, um, Venus Noire uh, by Robin Mitchell mentions her. There's a chapter on her. I mean, uh, so you know, that was the extent of it. But one of the things I found out was that you know, people from the French Caribbean and not strictly were all over Paris, uh, which I was aware of, but I'd never noticed how involved they were in the fashion of the time. Some of them are, you know, just fashion makers. Um, and to the extent that, you know, the most, the, for the Bohemians of the time, the, the uber Bohemians were those guys. Uh, and that to me was interesting because it really, um, echoed things I already knew about that history, but just within the U.S. And, you know, part of, uh, you know, I mentioned my background and my interest. And one of the things I'm, I've long been interested in and I attempt to, to work, uh, to work on in pretty much everything I do are connections between, uh, the Americas and, and, and Europe, but also, uh, you know, by way of the, of the black world, basically. And so it was really, uh, interesting to me and sort of confirmed a few hunches to find, you know, fairly similar and connected networks in this sort of the passage from, you know, of, of fashions and, and, and trends from the black world into, into the white mainstream. Yeah. yeah I really enjoyed how it, um, talked about colonialism and appropriation very much as a conversation. Uh, it's like, there were a lot of trends. I'm trying to describe the book without, um, making reading the book superfluous. I don't want to just spew the whole, the whole book and, you know, give people not a reason to, to read it. So, um, I try not to get too specific. I want people to read the book for themselves, but I was really impressed with the way that you brought up things from the past and different regions and in, in Europe, the Caribbean and, uh, deep South and America and, uh, punk rock era in the way that was a uh, very plausible, like, but also a sign that, um, nothing is new. I, I was very surprised at these old examples and how far, how far, far back it went. Um, the Creole style of dress that was, that was happening and all this, uh, there's an author who coined the term, uh, negrophilia and she was, uh, describing, it's a book. It's particularly about, uh, the turn of century, uh, France. And it talks about mm -hmm. when, when all that happened, but I didn't realize how many other regions, uh, it happened until I read your, read your book. Like you make a very plausible and how many of these did you discover? Like you said, you gave an example of one you discovered in doing the research for, uh, but yeah. How did you go about finding, um, these examples? How many of them did you already know versus, um, discovered in the book and which one was the most shocking to you? Um, so, you know, I, I've gleaned these, uh, along the years, uh, you know, as I said, uh, you know, at the, at the risk of sounding like the nerd I am, uh, it's, it's a lifetime of, of, of interest, right? I mean, um, and, and on this particular topic, it's been, um, you know, at different levels, right? I mean, some of this, uh, are discoveries I made just, you know, listening to music or being interested in music. Uh, others come off from scholarly work. So, uh, they add up and, and they speak to each other, uh, so much so that, you know, some of these I'd be hard put to, to, to pinpoint exactly when I've, I've found them, you know, or first uh, came across them. Uh, in this case, you know, I could tell you because I, I remember vividly, um, coming across those, but, uh, others, you know, sort of built, uh, with time. And I want to say, um, you know, uh, 
grad school, going to grad school in the US is the first time I want to say where I could connect things that until then I'd only been doing for fanzines and you know more personal and I want to say uh, um, unofficial, you know, uh, things, right? I, you know, I, I, I was writing in, in fanzines with my sister when I was in middle school, right? So I never stopped doing that. And the thing, but, but for a long time, things I was doing in, in, in that frame did not necessarily enter what I was doing at university. Uh, that changed when I, when I went to uh, Penn State, when, you know, I finally, you know, it was not as easy in France to even think that I could do this as a, a serious scholarship, right? In the US, it was easier. And so that's really when those all those interests started meshing in ways that, that didn't necessarily before, but then I'd also been researching them, I guess, uh, not as in a scholarly way uh, very early. Um, and so, you know, this book was interesting for that, right? It allowed me uh, to use some of the Moscali uh, uh, research, but back to things that I've been interested in writing f about forever, you know, pop music and, and, and popular culture. Um, as to the, the examples, uh, I don't know what's the most shocking. I mean, I think, you know, there's a way in which, um, again, I mean, we're, um, before we, we start speaking here, we, we mentioned uh, Haiti. Um, there's a way in which Haiti is the original surprise, right? Uh, um, you either know it because you're Haitian, <laughs> you have Haitian background and they, you, you're born into it. Or you sort of hear about it early because you're Caribbean, which is my case, but still you need to find out about it. And I think there's a way in which discovering the the scope of that event and the scope of of somehow that event being obscured in the history of the US, of France, uh, of Europe, that you know, just trying to fathom just this yeah, the the, the size of this thing in, in world history and just you know that there was this hole in everything you thought you knew about things makes everything else pale in by comparison you know i mean yeah okay so i'm talking about fashion and yeah the connection you mentioned were are super interesting but as far as i'm concerned they also they're connected to that initial absence right um why is there like a Caribbean fashion in the, you know, direct uh, period of the of French Revolution? Well, because there's a major revolution in the Caribbean, right? Uh, and all these Caribbean ladies uh, who, you know, they, they came to France for a variety of reasons, but they are connected to this as well, right? Um, so I would say maybe, you know, maybe that's, that's kind of a cop out, but I would say... Uh, Haiti remains, and the Haitian Revolution remains, to me, the the, the most the most surprising of all those examples. Um, the one that I found uh, very surprising, I mean, I found a lot of it surprising, but the particular one was the the cake the cakewalk, and mm. that was going back to uh, slavery times. So that was really interesting to me that this idea that um, even slaves people were doing this appropriation, and and I was wondering if he had any. I want to kickwalk thing. I was wondering if you had any training or interest in psychology because I feel like this counts almost more like a psychohistory, like like one of those uh, histories that also infuses uh, psychology. Because because you talk about, I guess, almost like in a Fanonian way, like uh, the kind of psychological conversation happening. This kind of um, seeing people as noble savages. This idea in some way that the black people create something to kind of mock the white people, but at the same time, the white people take it almost earnestly. And and another part of it I found very interesting was this kind of projection or, you know, seeing living out the the, the savage 
by proxy of appropriating, you know, savage culture, like it's very hard to be a uh, savage in your white skin. But if you can, you know, appropriate a black skin, it gives you this kind of license to um, do things you normally couldn't do as a quote unquote uh, white person. You can get away with them as a hipster. You can kind of indulge in this kind of id, you know, and uh, I was wondering where that psychological angle uh, came from. It was like reading a lot of Fanon. Was it something that uh, came to you naturally following the history? Were there any like racial thinkers that you came across in the research for this? Because I kind of like that it wasn't just a regular, uh, this happened, this was appropriated, but that you're willing to go there and infuse the psychological observations with it, which I think some people get kind of afraid to do. So it's, it's funny because I don't, I don't think I would have, I would have described it that way. Um, so to me, um, and maybe where where the connection might might happen is that to me that's that's related to to my training as uh, uh, in close reading, right? So to me, it's it's a literary tool that I apply to to different things. Um, but then again, I think it's a tool that's not devoid and that that's related to uh, to to psychology to, and psychoanalysis, certainly, right? And again, I don't. Uh, this really it really isn't my domain. But um, you know, I was <laughs> I was telling recently uh, some of my students because we were talking about the uncanny and you know horror literature and and you know that text by Freud that that remains a, a reference. And I was saying, you know, it's funny about Freud is that pretty much everything is written has been debunked, but he remains a great literary reader of literature, right? I mean, it's like, you know, everything he said about people tends to be totally messed up. Yeah. But then, you know, in this text, mostly he talks about short stories, right? And he's like, oh, he's using them to say things about people, uh, which I find really interesting because I think it works that way. I, th I feel like when he does this directly to people is when is when uh, he runs into trouble, maybe. But again, I have a fairly relatively limited knowledge of what he does. But um, to go back to your question, yeah, I would say... Um, yeah, to me, I, don't, I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I tend to read those as uh, cultural artifacts and, and you know, uh, analyze those as, as symbols in this way. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that it's psychological, but you know, as you as you say this, like I can see, uh, I can see how that might work. I mean, I certainly did read Fanon and 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 was uh, you know uh, duly impressed. Uh, and, and it's just very formative. I mean, it seems a silly thing to say. I mean, it's one of the other things about Fanon, right, which uh, it remains to, to this day, right? Uh, being a Frenchman and not very well known in France. So, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to have this conversation always. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I would say maybe there's, there's a connection to that. And, you know, as uh, a younger person, I also uh, read uh, Wilhelm Reich and uh, <laughs> the psychology of fascism. So, uh, so that might, that might be connected to it. But that that definitely was that, that. I wouldn't say that was my outlook in in writing it. I think it's so interesting you say that because because I was very I was very impressed by the the, the racial psychology in in there, and I thought it was an explicit, um, a deliberate deliberate angles. I find it very interesting that that you say you didn't go into it. With, well, I think you accomplished it, whether you meant to or or not. Um, but I, so I, I think it's really the term, right? I, I again, I think uh, uh, I wouldn't make that claim. I think partially because it's not it's not my specialty, right? I, I don't I, I would want to pretend to to do psychology when I don't you know I I don't study it and I don't really uh, know it as a as a scholar, I guess. But uh, yeah, again, I think I'm I'm glad if it if it's if it's relevant at that I level. See, I see your point now, like. Um, yeah, I won't say it's psychological as in like when you when you read it, you think you're reading, um, you know, someone who's claiming to be an authority on, uh, you know, psychology. But yeah, I mean, we all basically um, 
mixed ecological observations, um, you know, whether in the academy, whether in the academy or not. And I, f- I feel like you, I feel like you don't need to actually be, you know, explicitly doing peer reviewed um, psychology to do great psychology. Like, like for example, like um, Mark Twain's books, for example, I think are great books on psychology because I think that guy really kind of understands how people's brains work. But you know, mm-hmm. it would never count as an actual. Uh, psychological. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, like, like I feel like there's a very um, not psychological in terms of, in a clinical sense, but in, in an intuitive sense, like an understanding of uh, what it is that white people get, or at least an attempt to posit what it is that white people and black people get out of the appropriation mm-hmm. um, relationship. And I think that's another thing that I didn't even think to think about, which you go into your book, is what the black token or model that the bohemians use on the scene because that's something else that i didn't quite realize i always assumed any early examples of appropriation were kind of happening from people traveling and seeing stuff and bringing it back but i didn't realize how many people from martinico the caribbean were in europe that early uh kind of being the equivalent of what the token black hipsters were in the 2000s in 2000s you got like a handful of black hipsters on the skate scene on the punk scene whatever that kind of afropunk thing a handful of people who are kind of like the mascots but also a little bit um disgruntled because of how they're kind of used but kind of cast aside happened in punk and you know all that stuff and i didn't realize you say in your book these people in martinique who are in these bohemians um, or other caribbean places are in france in like the 1800s or in these various places and you know the and that's fascinating to me. Like, what was her life like being there? What was it like being a token then? You know, like it, people find it so hard to deal with now in this metropolitan, progressive, you know, diverse place. And yeah, you found some really interesting things. That I just had no idea dynamics that were happening. You know, it's it's funny. I'm thinking about the, this movie that's about to come out. I, I'm sure you've seen the the trailer. I'll maybe write about it. Uh, Chevalier. That's about the. Um, this, um, you know, um, where is he from? Guadeloupe, I want to say. Maybe Saint-Domingue. I, sh- I should know. It escapes me right now. But a composer, a black composer from uh, who, um, you know, ended up in France in the, in the uh, late 1700s. He was also a master fencer, just this, you know, oversized figure. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious what, what the movie is going to be like. Because, uh, you know, there's... Yeah, there's an entire line, there's an entire history of that of that phenomenon and those people, right? Uh, individuals uh, that you know that find them. You, know, you mentioned Afro punk. That reminds me of the um, you know in the in the movie, right? Uh, from when was that? Like 2004, I think. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, it, it, there's a point where you know they, they, this is this really funny scene when there was some of the, the 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 people being interviewed mentioned, you know, I was used to being the one, you know, and like yeah. they say. You know, well, there'd be a second one and they would either nod or like sort of have a, you know, final fight or something like yeah, there can only be one type thing. Um, what's funny is, yeah, it's it's been like that for, for a while. Um, you know, I was thinking about, um, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm terrible with uh, remembering names and, and titles, but, uh, you know, I've been writing about uh, the poet Ted Jones, who notoriously, you know, was the hipster of hipsters in the 50s until he left right he, he got tired of american racism and he just up and left and he didn't just leave right he went all over uh, the guy walked all over africa and i mean the entire continent which is just insane uh and then he'd go to europe and like sort of 
do things for money and then go back to Africa. Uh, but in Europe, he was very much that guy to the point that, you know, it's, uh, so I mean, I talk about it a little bit in the book, but it's sort of baffling, right? He goes to, he goes to, um, the Netherlands and starts uh, like a spoken word scene there. He goes to France and reads with the surrealist. He's in England. He's, you know, he pops up in Denmark. He's that guy, but he's literally that guy, right? Like he's the one person and everybody meets him. You know, I've met so many people who told me, um, so when did he, I think he passed in, uh, again, I should know, 2013, I think. I, but until then, I met so many people who met him just I completely, I mean, somewhat randomly in the streets of Paris, right? He was that guy for a long time, too. Uh, and so uh, it becomes, I think, really interesting when when you realize that it's that phenomenon is multiplied, you know, over the years, but also over the countries, but it's essentially also the same phenomenon, right? And so uh, once you start looking at it, I think with a broader scope, you start seeing slightly different patterns that also, I think, you know, make for an essential connection uh, in the hipster phenomenons in all those countries, right? Uh, but that because it is an element that tends to be downplayed in the histories of all those countries, uh, you know, that, that sort of that, that line to me is especially interesting for, for that reason, among others. Yeah. Yeah. I think a big problem that happens in modern society is with the dominance of the image, uh, particularly the moving image. If people have trouble associating you with, uh, clips and, you know, iconic clips, whether, whether it's recorded audio or recorded video, I think it's almost like you didn't exist or people have to dig to find you. It's very like, I'm sure there's a very popular Ted Jones, um, movie biopic you know and it did very well and maybe had someone like andre 3000 or denzel washington or something like that he would be a household name but without that it's almost like you don't uh don't exist but it's not a lot of famous clips of you or no one maybe recreated you in the moving image as a um you know biopic because i can remember that i'm almost remember malcolm x and it's like when that movie came out by Spike Lee, people just kind of mentioned Malcolm X, but I feel like that movie kind of made him very real and permanent to a lot of people. But people, when they try to think and remember him for a long time, would remember Denzel Washington playing Malcolm X, I find yeah. more than, you know, like the Denzel Malcolm X became more real almost than the pre existing Malcolm X to the point that I saw somebody once who had a picture, a Malcolm X, uh, tattoo uh with the pose but they put a the picture the tattoo was the denzel washington malcolm x and i was like why would you tattoo the denzel washington malcolm x uh on your arm instead of just malcolm x like and i just imagine the process of him saying i want a picture of malcolm x and printing up a picture of denzel and bringing it to the tattoo artist but i feel like that's what happens with a lot of these really interesting black people or just any scenes like kind of this way how for a long time, I grew up thinking that counterculture basically started with the beats and the hippies, because that's what mm -hmm. we had the most, you know, visual evidence of. And then we used to do a casual reading of uh, cultural history. You realize, OK, there's been a counterculture in this country and other countries for the longest time. Like like you describe these uh, women. I'm going to uh, mess up the pronunciations, but those women, how do you pronounce it? Mer 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 
Merveilleuse. Um, yeah. yeah, Merveilleuse and the Incroyables and all these things that, you know, were kind of like the scenesters of their day. We never hear about these people, you know, like, mm -hmm. but uh, all these kind of scenes, mods, rockers, hipsters, punks, like it's been happening forever, but we kind of stop our history at the moment that, you know, visual and recorded media can uh, preserve it. And yeah, th this book was a pretty good reminder of just how centered on ourselves we are, like, you know, this kind of postmodern kind of pop culture that we have. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. And you, as you were saying this, the two two thoughts occurred to me that are also tied to, I think, to, to what you were saying. Uh, recently, um, I just saw this online, but there was uh, some ceremony at the Pantheon in Paris uh, related to uh, Toussaint Louverture. Uh, and um, again, I'm awful with names, but the, the the actor from Haiti who portrayed him in this French TV movie from 10 years ago oh, was it, 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 Jimmy, Jimmy Jean-Louis, I think it is. Yeah, yes, that's him. Yeah, he was dressed in the uniform at the Pantheon, and he he read some speech. It might have been for the it might have been the anniversary of his of his death. I'm not sure what what the occasion was, but um, so he showed up and again in his uniform, I mean costume, and he was hanging, you know, uh, shaking hands at the entrance of the Pantheon, and then inside dressed up as as Toussaint uh, delivering his speech. And uh, I gave this talk maybe four years ago uh, when this image started popping up. But if if you look up Toussaint Louverture, like an image search on Google, uh, one of the first one that comes up is uh, is the montage that was made sometime in the 2010s, cutting a blackface from one painting and and slapping it onto a uniform, the uniform body of Lafayette from a different painting. And when whoever did this originally, because I, when I first found it, I looked it up, had done it as a montage, presenting it as a montage for whatever project. But ever since then, it's become one of the most ubiquitous, you know, images of Tristan that you will find anywhere. And, you know, does it matter? We're not really sure if we have like, there are, you know, some images have a claim to possibly have been, uh, that, that, you know, been done from, from life. You know, but, but for the most part, all the images that we have at Tristan Louverture are, are total fancy, right? And people just drew a black guy, essentially. Uh, but still, so you know what I mean? There's something really weird to me about this. It's like, well, right, so none of these are real. So does it matter? Uh, it does matter to me that you just go around and say, well, this is even a pretend painting of Toussaint Louverture when you, you shouldn't, you know, you should, did you even look into it? Like you just go on the internet and reproduce this image that you find everywhere, which is essentially what's been happening. And I think it, it sort of like relates to what you were saying is that it's a time period where we obviously don't have footage for. So the second best thing is some image that looks vaguely, uh, you know, historically accurate. And then yeah. we just... That. And all of a sudden, we have something semi-concrete that we can hang on to, even though it's a complete lie. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I would say historically plausible. That's that's the standard yeah. that ends up, ends up happening. Like, you know, it, it could have been him. So we might as well treat it like it was him. Yeah. And it doesn't matter because, you know, again, you know, we don't actually know for sure that we have an image of him. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> Black guy in a uniform. So it's good enough, I guess. The... Uh... The thing I should have done at the top, uh, I just kind of jumped into the meat and potatoes of the book, but uh, can you describe the overall thesis and the journey of the book, like what, what the book's about, you know, w without being so specific that people feel like they've have a substitute for reading reading the thing uh sure uh so uh well i, won't, I guess i won't try to, to ruin the book with the final answer as to whether or not we can decolonize hipsters but um 
I guess part of what I was interested in um, was partly, you know, again, looking at a, a phenomenon that that may not seem uh, on the on the face of it related to to the topic of, of decolonizing and decolonization, because because again, it seems like such a, a Western phenomenon and and such a white phenomenon that it might you know uh, might not be see seem obvious at all if what if anything it has to do with colonization in the first place um and so i guess part of you know uh, one of the things i was hoping to do in the book and as i've said already a, a bunch of times uh to me that the historical perspective is is of the essence for just about everything and and to me the you know putting a historical perspective on 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 the hipster phenomenon was interesting because i already knew that it was very much related to race uh, but beyond that, I think there's very few things that are related to race in the 21st century that don't have roots in colonization anyway. Um, but that's a history that tends not to be well known, or at least a perspective that tends to be uh, shortened, especially when we talk about fashion, right? We all know, you know, the 20, 30 year cycle of fashion, right? You know, <laughs> seeing kids uh, in high school wearing what I was wearing in high school, and it's very disturbing, but that tends to be uh, the extent of that, uh, of that uh, cultural memory. Uh, so part I was hoping to do uh, in the book was sort of, um, yeah, maybe expand the, the historical scope and see and see what we would find there. And something that you um, do, I think, very well is to tie in uh, recent phenomenon to their place in in history. It's part of like very few things pop up fully formed and in a, in a vacuum. So uh, you talk about this um, fascist this fascist uh, streak in punk, which I really like that you did because I feel like. Uh, a lot of people, millennial and Gen Z in that social justice sphere, have kind of made punk. We did an episode about this, about how punk has somehow become this kind of, um, it's been given this new woke history where it's been like um, a place for outcasts of all different race and creeds and genders to get together and find inclusive space. And I was like, okay, this is um, millennial Gen Z revisionism. This is not, like punk always had a very fascist uh, streak to it. There's always a tension you know, between the black participants and, you know, the the so-called ironic racism and whatever of um the, their white their white peers. And I thought I knew about a lot of this stuff, but you give some examples of um the simultaneous racism slash fascism um and fetishization of cultural appropriators that have gone on for like a long time, but also broader than people think. Like I forgot about um Joy Division Ian Curtis, I forgot about uh, him. David Bowie, uh, you bring up as being uh, ahead of the curve. And it's someone that no one talks about that with David Bowie anymore. It's interesting how, how a lot of people are able to erase a lot of their, uh, you know, forays into into fascism and Nazism and, and racism, uh, ironic or not, you know? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, these are all bands I like too, right? So I mean, I understand the, the urge not to mention uh, those elements that are really, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I don't even know what to call them, regrettable, uh, terrible. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, yeah. I really like The Clash. And I, I didn't know that Mick Jones had a band called the, the London SS before. before uh, I mean, and they, you know, and in some cases, you know, it's, uh, you know, um, 
Right. It's the name of the band and, you know, I mean, whatever. Uh, obviously, it could be much worse and other people did much worse, but, but yeah. it's not right. Again, it does make up something when you keep running into this over and over and over again. And, you know, I kept thinking, you know, I grew, I grew up watching those guys and thinking, oh, okay, you know, uh, you know, Sid Vicious and his swastika, especially that scene is in Paris and it's shocking and shocking the bourgeois or whatever. But it's like... What bourgeois are you really shocking with this? You know, besides the fact that, of course, if you go in Paris with the, I mean, in the 70s with the swastika, uh, you might run into a lot of people who don't have a very dear memory of this. Uh, you'll run also to a lot of people who don't mind as it happens in the 70s in Paris. Uh, who are you, you know, uh, like, who are you really pissing off doing this? And and I think the, the answer, again, uh, there's something there that's also really a comfortable way of shocking or, or pretending to shock people. Uh, it remains much more shocking to to claim racial solidarity, for example. Uh, maybe it doesn't sound as edgy, but truth is, if you really want to piss people off, try that one. Uh, but they weren't, right? And so, uh, was, you know, some of them, uh, some of them did eventually, I guess. But um, yeah, it's, you know, part of this was, to me, uh, at least partly related to, to making sense of scene I, I'd seen forever, because you know, I was really. Uh, into punk rock. I grew up going to concerts and stuff. And, um, you know, the, well, there was casual racism there. There were also clashes with, you know, a skinhead scene that was also very developed at that point. So, you know, there was, it was, a, a, I think, a point of, uh, of making a point to separate yourself from those guys to, to not be as much of a, uh, you know, uh, ironic fascist in, in the late 80s anyway, when I was around. But um, but still, right, the history uh, it still contains this and and and, the, and there's sort of a regular comeback to that. So, um, yeah, to me, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's close to my heart as well, to be, to be honest, right? I mean, these are things that I, I saw uh, f relatively close because this was musical I, I did like and, and artists that I did enjoy. And, um, you know, I grew up, to, you know, trying to, trying to make sense of it. So, I mean, I guess that's also part of what I, uh, I tried to do in the book. And, you know, um, a trend that you bring up that I've, I've noticed today, I didn't realize how far back uh, it went, is this cycle that always happens. And it's kind of obvious when you think about it, where you kind of make your name appropriating and using Black elements. But as you start to make it, it's almost like a ritual. It's almost mm -hmm. like uh, ingrained in the DNA or something, because it, it seems like it repeats everywhere in every era is that there's a point where there's a turn from blackness. And mm -hmm. it was one of those things when you write about, it, I'm like, you know, this is like so obvious when you think about it, that it almost feels like um, there's a term in psychology is called the um, unthought known uh, where you hear something and you feel like you're being told something that you already knew, except you never actually thought it, if that makes sense. It, it's kind of related to deja vu, the, the feeling of the unthought known, like uh, huh? where someone tells you something, but it's never something you ever explicitly thought, but you knew. So hearing it explicitly said for the first time feels like hearing something that you already know, but at the same time, you're feeling the shock of uh, discovery. And I felt that way with uh, the turn from blackness. Because, you know, we see it all the time, even now, like like Justin Timberlake came out the blue with uh, hey, the Man from the Woods album. And it's like, wait, wait a minute, when w suddenly you're, you're, you're a, a lumberjack looking hipster with, you know, doing mm -hmm. indie, indie music. And Miley Cyrus came out twerking to make a name for herself. But um, she gave an interview talking about she fell in with the wrong crowd and criticized hip hop <laughs> and she's now a, a white woman again. And yeah. yeah. 
and that happened all the way. You give examples like with uh, uh, punk, how there's all these Caribbean elements in in punk, and as punk got popular, like 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 a lot of Blondie's old songs were straight up reggae songs or reggae mm-hmm. covers, but by the end they were doing disco. And but even as they're going to the disco era, they were appropriating a new form in in rap, you know. But yeah, yeah by the, by the end of their yeah. career, by Debbie Harry's solo career, she was just pure white music. Hmm. Yeah, I mean. Um... You know, I think again, I like to think that some, uh, some, you know, like, um, some of these artists. Yeah, I actually, I don't, I don't even think uh, sincerity is an issue, right? Like, I don't. Um, I mean, it is, but I don't think it's quite measurable. You know, people like you know, we were talking about the Clash, uh, Big Audio Dynamite is, you know, it's well, it's a mixed band for one thing. Uh, you know, they they went there too, right? I mean, but from the get-go, that the reggae covers on their first album, uh, they never stopped doing reggae covers. Uh, you know, they integrated the uh, hip-hop also early on. Uh, they kept doing this through the 90s. And again, I, I think, you know, um, I think it's fair to say it comes from genuine interest and, and love for the music. Um, but again, does it, you know, uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's not, you know, again, it's not about, you know, morally judging people necessarily so much as, uh, as, as I seen that, that phenomenon. And, and yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I was trying to think of other examples, but I think uh, there's some Beatles, that the, the, Beatles, the Beatles, Beatles and the Rolling Stones, I think are good examples. Cause yeah. I mean, I mean, they both started just doing, um, same with Eric Clapton's uh, early okay. bands. They all started just doing straight up covers of black of black uh, yeah. race race music. Like the Beatles' first albums was 100 covers. Same with uh, the Rolling Stones. Stones. Yep. Yeah, yep. then the, and then by Sgt. Pepper's, you know, Lonely Heart Band. Like, can you even really hear um, that much blackness in the music? It's very folksy, and it, it's, it's it's no it's, longer needed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Once you once you make it, I mean, you see it with TV too. Like, if you look at all these new channels, like UPN and WB, when those came out, they were all founded on black shows. Uh, Fox mm-hmm. started with a he- with a heavy um, disproportionate amount of uh, black targeted TV shows, and once they all became uh, quote unquote legitimate um, networks that could afford to like buy Super Bowl rights and stuff like that, or have a bunch of like uh, white teen shows in the case of like WB slash CW, they kind of erased their bla- their black past. Like UPN and WB, which made up the CW, their whole lineups were black when they when they started. Basically, they were like you know the black networks, and it put them on, it, it got them uh, in the game, and they just totally erased it. You would have no idea. It's it's, it's a trend that even transcends. I think I think um, music, and you had really early examples. Like like what is your earliest example of? Uh, the appropriation then turn from blackness once you uh establish it uh that you can remember hmm. um for appropriation it goes it goes you know you can you can go really far uh you know one of one of the lines that i've been really interested in is uh uh the line that 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 leads into uh, uh blackface minstrelsy which i think you know really offers the model for everything we, we've been talking about uh you know this sort of a dip into blackness and and performance you know white performance of blackness as as way to as the you know the the, the royal path to to uh to fame uh i think in the us really comes through uh, by way of of uh, blackface minstrelsy uh before that you know there are uh, actors um what's his name uh, charles dibden i think from uh, england uh same thing you know i mentioned that i think in passing uh, you find the same thing in french theater uh that has you know at the turn of the 18th uh, of the 19th century uh, late 18th century, you also have all those plays that like, 
where people dance the calenda or you know those Caribbean songs or pretend speak Creole, you know all this stuff. You you see those trends uh, in England, uh, in the U.S. and in France um, now. For for actors performing them, I, I can't say that I know their careers well enough to know if they turn back to whiteness at some point. But I honestly would not be surprised. Uh, I also feel that you know, for theater, it's, it's a tad different in that you know, depending on you know what you become famous for, you might get to play the same role over and over again, but then also branch out, right? Uh, um, you know, they, they, there's a dimension there that also uh, you know. Uh, would, would demand that we, you know, we, we might wonder about, you know, how much of it is comedy and drama and like, which people do you play in, in what surroundings? Um, but yeah, I'm trying to find, uh, you know, thinking about the, the earliest, I can't, I can't quite say, uh, to be, to be honest. The earliest I can um, remember from your book was, um, in early France with the Caribbean people where, um, they influenced a lot of the female forms of dress, but were kind of, uh, there was a figure that you that you brought up who was like one of those kind of tokens on the scene who was like the calling him a token is not fair because he's an inspiration. So uh, you describe someone who maybe it's a jog jog the memory. You describe someone who was on the scene who kind of inspired the whole scene, but at the same time he was increasingly kind of dismissed as kind of like a, a savage, like you know. Um, at the same time, he was inspiring the scene. Does this ring any? Hmm. Ring any um, what 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 I'm, I remember about this? You mean uh, around the the French Revolution? Yes, yes. It sounds um, right. Because right. I mean, you know, one of the things that I talk about that you, that you mentioned earlier, also fashion wise, uh, you know, with the incroyable and, and merveilleuse, uh, and the, the sort of you know mode of dress for women specifically uh, that was coming from from the Caribbean. Uh, was also inspired by famous, you know, white Caribbean uh, ladies in this case, the most famous one being Josephine, uh, Napoleon's wife, right? Um, there's something to be said about the sort of, uh, the cycle of fashion there as well, right? Which is that it sort of, you know, blends into, uh, Roman, so-called Roman fashion eventually, but that's not really, uh, where it started, right? So it becomes that and sort of gains, you know, there's this whole style, like in the, the empire style that, that, ins that is, you know, the, the furniture, everything seems inspired by Rome, but this style of dress before it becomes Roman was really Caribbean. And, you know, same thing, the diaphanous, like, you know, transparent dress and a very, very risque. Uh, it's not, it's this, let's say when they start calling it Roman is when it becomes almost okay. Right. But that's, that's not where it came from. So maybe, maybe that's a good example of, uh, of what you're losing. Yeah. And I found the name. I couldn't remember the name. Uh, Alexander, Alexander Privat Dangomo. Oh, okay. From, from, yeah. One from, of the, from one the, right. One of the Bohemians then. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, in his case, I don't think he ever changed because he's, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a free man of color, right? At, at a point when uh, France hasn't quite yet, uh, um, uh, abolished slavery for, for the second time. Um, and he is the sort of the inspiration for the, for the, you know, the Bohemians. Yeah. And, and to make clear, I'm not saying he changed, but more that from what you described, it seems like the relation to him kind of changed where he's this kind of, you kind of describe him seemingly as this kind of inspiration, but yeah. he's also kind of erased from the history. They don't write much about him. And to me, that's kind of a turn from blackness in and of itself that he's yeah. not committed to the record. You have to dig to find him. Like, like you, you're right here. Most of what we know of him is secondhand conveyed mm -hmm. by friends and acquaintances who, as much as they liked them, seemingly never found out for sure how much of what you told them was made up or real. And I feel like if he yeah. was somebody that was uh, white and looked like them, he would be much more um, 
cemented and committed to to the record. And I feel like even the act of uh, casually forgetting the the black people on the scene is part of that turn from turn from blackness. I, th- that's kind of what I was trying to say. Okay, so yeah, so he's a yeah, he's a really interesting figure uh, to me also because uh, the sort of memory or, or lack thereof related to him is a really common uh, phenomenon for for people who research uh, black culture and history, right? Uh, you know, you think of. Um, you know, even people like, you know, say Phyllis Whitley, who left us poems, right? I and mean, we, we know something of her, but we don't know that much about her because beyond, you know, what she actually committed to paper, um, very little was kept of her. Uh, and Anglomo is along the same lines that he was always in the middle of things, but he was not a writer. He was surrounded by writers and he was, you know, a fashion, you know, a trendsetter, uh, but he never wrote about any of it. And he was a storyteller very clearly, but his stories were, were put to paper by other people who, you know, as you mentioned, you were, you were reading the book. Like it, it's very clear in their writing that they have no idea when he's making up stuff that can, they seem convinced that he's making up some of his stories, but they literally can't tell. And so you have this guy that you keep, you know, running into in the text of all those people who did write and who did get published and who tend to be better remembered, if only on the, on the strength of that, right, of being published, who evoke him as sort of ghost-like figure. Uh, but yeah, so you, he's like twice, three times removed, removed because he never, he never did the thing that counts as, as, uh, uh, you know, for, to, to be recorded. And those people who do, do remember him, to be fair, right? I mean, they, they all present him as this guy that everybody was looking up to. Uh, I think I also invested maybe, you know, more or less uh, uh, consciously uh, in his, uh, I would say, erasure through myth, myth mythologization, uh, which, you know, not to, to um, maybe, uh, you know, theorize this on the spot, but but it's another phenomenon that, that I see a lot, right? Which is that, you know, we assume that erasure is just people scratching out names and whatnot but the truth is uh and i I would say especially when 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 you're uh, when you're looking at a black presence in uh in western and, and white culture and history um mythologizing people and and presence is just as as useful in erasing it and i think in this case there's something of that right i mean He's mentioned, but everybody who mentions him, that's mentioning him as a guy that was already something different, you know, sort of ineffable in his own life during, you know, as he was alive, right? They all, they all hung out with him, but they, they couldn't make heads or tails of him. And these are the people celebrating him, right? So he's already, a, you know, I don't want to say a ghost, but like almost like a, a supernatural being as he's alive. And so after his death, it's just, you know. All right, y'all. So... That is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.